0: Well, good morning, RCC family. Good to see y'all. My name's Adam. I'm one of the pastors here. And today, if you couldn't tell, we're talking about the church as a family. Uh, Look at the person next to you and say, "What up, family?" Because that's what we are. We're a family. Now, you might be wondering, like, why are we talking about this today? It's kind of a random topic. Well, we're in the middle of a series called "We Are RCC." And uh, this series is summarizing basically our values, the RCC core values. Um, Values are critical because they define an organization's personality. Um, It's what's intrinsic in our DNA. Uh, Removing values from an organization is kind of like removing uh, the soul from a living body. You shouldn't be able to do it because they're so in with what you are. Uh, Patrick Lencioni, a leadership expert, he wrote a a book called Five Dysfunctions of a Team, and he talks about how important values are for a church or a business or a hospital, whatever you're a part of. Every organization needs them. And he he gives an illustration. He uh, he talks about an airline he was working with and consulting with, and this airline had the value of humor. And so they analyzed a lot of what they did through the value of humor, and they would not hire anyone that didn't have a sense of humor, that couldn't laugh at themselves. And they, they fired people who could not laugh. And uh, in one instance, there was a, a, a customer, a frequent flyer of this airline, who emailed the CEO with an angry email. And uh, she mentioned how upset she was because one of the stewardesses on her flight was uh, doing the pre-flight safety check, you know, explaining the oxygen mask and the seatbelts. And she made a joke and just trying to make it fun. And in the email, the frequent flyer, she said, safety is not something to joke about. It should be serious. And most people would assume the CEO would respond to this valuable customer with, oh, we're so sorry, we'll, we'll incorporate something different in our training, we'll, we'll talk to that employee, thank you for your business, something like that. That would seem reasonable, right? That's not what the CEO did. Instead, he sent an email in reply, just three words, we'll miss you. <laughs> yeah. Because a value is something you're committed to, even if it costs you. And our values are on the screen. These are the things that we are committed to, even if it costs us. People, money, opportunities these things are so important to us that we're never going to let go of them. Uh, last week we covered our first value. The gospel is A to Z. and this week we're talking about the church as a family. Next week, we'll cover every me- member of missionary and the week after turning the lost into leaders. So, this week, the church as a family, and we're going to look at Romans 12, 9-21, as Alyssa read. So, if, if, if you look at Romans 12, this text is all about the church family. Uh, in fact, if you look at the, the title, uh, starting in verse 9, it says, Marks of the True Christian. Do you guys see that in your Bibles? Well, what's interesting here is that Paul is writing this letter in Romans 12, not to individual Christians. He's writing this letter to local house churches scattered throughout Rome. This letter is to communities of people, kind of like to us. He didn't write it to just individuals. He wrote it to a collective group. And this is important because it shows us that there are many commands in the Bible, specifically in this this section, but all throughout the Bible, that you simply cannot obey if you are not a committed member of a local church family. Like, there are things here you, you literally you cannot do if you're not committed somewhere. And there are a lot of Christian free agents today. A lot. Lo- people who love Jesus but are not committed to a specific group of people. And what all of these one another commands show us is that to do the Christian faith, you've got to be in the context of community. It's not me in Jesus, it's we in Jesus. Trying to do Christianity on your own is like trying to build a human pyramid on your own. Uh, You can try and do it by yourself, but it's going to be really lame. (laughs) And it kind of goes intrinsically against what the whole point of a human pyramid is. You do it with other people. Every Christian needs to be a part of a church family. Now, it's important to note and consider, what is that church family supposed to look like? Because I know there are a lot of people coming in here with bad church family experiences. Well, let's see what God has for us in what a church family looks like. And In, in Romans 12, Paul here gives this, these churches in Rome a list of 12 ingredients of a healthy church. You could call this section uh, the RCC recipe book. If we wanted to cook up a great church family, this is what it would look like. Now, before we jump into the text, two brief caveats that I think are necessary to mention. Number one, it's important to know that Romans chapter 12 follows Romans chapters 1 through 11. Duh, I know, but it's important. (laughs) If you read Romans chapters 1 through 11, it is literally chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter about the gospel. It's all about what God has already done for us. Like, if you're sitting there listening to the early church read this letter, you're probably like, okay, when's Paul going to get to the stuff that we do? Because it's just thing and thing and thing that God has done and blessed us with. And this order is really important because community flows from the gospel. It flows from already resting in what God has already done for us. There are 40 exhortations in Romans 12 alone. 40 commands. I mean, we could spend our whole lives trying to master Romans 12. But the order here is important because apart from the gospel, we can't do any of this. If you don't have the gospel, you go one, and two, one of two directions. You go either towards pride or you go towards despair. Either you'll hear the commands of God and hear Romans 12, and you'll puff yourself up thinking self-righteously, and I got this, I'm a beast, I'm hospitable, I abhor what is evil. I'm a good guy. Or you'll be in the other direction and be in despair thinking, Man, I have no hope of doing all this. Show hospitality, I don't even like people. <laughs> you'll be either driven to pride or despair. And What you need is the gospel. The gospel, it humbles you and at the same time it lifts you. It humbles you because you realize you'll never do these commands perfectly. All of us need God's grace somewhere in this list. So we have to have this, this measure of humility as we approach Romans 12. But the gospel also lifts you because even though you and I haven't done these well, guess what Jesus did? And his righteousness is given to us. So there's no pressure. We need all the grace of God in Christ to obey all the commands of God in Scripture. So the order here is important. Second important caveat, I'm I, I, hesitated whether to say this or not but I feel like it's necessary there's a difference between a gift and a responsibility there's a difference between a gift and a responsibility when you look at this list you see the commands of God and every Christian is responsible for doing all of these commands in Romans 12 but if you look early in Romans 12 Paul talks about gifts that there are certain people who have been supernaturally gifted by God in some of these areas right now, that may be true. There may be some of you who are supernaturally good at hospitality, are supernaturally good at teaching, and you're supposed to use that gift to build up the church. But just because those people exist doesn't mean the rest of you don't have to do it. You're, I mean, I hear this all the time. Like, it's not my gift to show hospitality, so I'll let him do that. It's not my gift to teach, so she can do that. No, no, no. We all show hospitality. He just does it really good, and he shows us how to do it better. No, no, we all teach in some way. Just some people get up here on the stage and do it in front of everybody. We're all responsible for all of these commands, though some of us have been gifted by God to build up the church with a gift specifically. Make sense? All right, no excuses. We all got to do this. All right. So with all that in mind, that's our vision. A church is a family for RCC. Each of us using our gifts to love one another, serve each other, build each other up. Now let's look at this cookbook. Let's make some, uh, some delicious church. What do you say? Please don't quote me on that. That was <laughs> weird. <laughs> Sad thing is, it's is gonna be online forever. So, <laughs> so number one, a church family should be filled with sincerity. Look at verse nine. Paul starts. He says, "Let love be genuine." This is literally meaning, "Let your love be without hypocrisy." The word Paul uses here is the same word used of a play actor somebody who puts on a front, somebody who's acting. Paul's saying, let your love be real. Let it be genuine. And this is important because this little phrase is the heading of the rest of the section. The rest of the verses are going to show us what genuine love actually looks like. And this command to let love be genuine would have been radical in the first century. The churches that Paul is writing to here are mostly house churches of about 30 to 40 people. Some though may have been bigger depending on the size of the space. And these house churches were full of all different types of people. You had current slaves, you had former slaves, you had homeless people, you had migrant workers, lower class workers, and even a few wealthy elites. And this context, first century Rome, was a very hierarchical culture, which made these commands very countercultural. And these local churches, filled with all different types of people, they actually loved each other. And it radically changed the first century Greco Roman world. Francis Schaeffer says that the church's love for each other is the most convincing proof to the world of the gospel's truthfulness. And that's what we see. Throughout history, and specifically in the first century, this tr- these church families of all different types of people actually loving each other was so countercultural that it intrigued people. People watching probably said, "I don't like your message. I don't like your Christianity, but I do like your community. So I'll come hang out." Okay, let me hear what the gospel is at least. That's the vision for a church family—a compelling community. Man. Our love is called to be genuine. It's really easy to talk a big game about church. There are a lot of Christians looking from the outside, talking, tweeting, writing blogs, criticizing churches. But Paul here is like, shut down the blog, shut down the criticism, stop talking, and go join an actual church and go love real people. It's one thing to talk about it. It's a whole other thing to commit somewhere and love people genuinely. And that's what call, Paul is calling us to do. Let your love be sincere, genuine. Secondly, the church family needs to have discernment. Nine, rest of nine, Paul says, abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. This genuine love is not blind acceptance. It's not loving to be a yes man to your friends. It's loving to point your friends to the truth. We live, and this is, I mean, you guys know this. We live in a society right now that is deathly afraid of upsetting a friend with the truth. I mean, there are the graveyards of friends who had the courage to tell their friend the truth, only to let the friendship die. You see, true love actually hates certain things. God wants us to have a holy love for each other. And Paul uses two strong words here. He says, abhor evil. Abhor means hate it exceedingly. Don't just dislike evil, despise, despise it. He says, hold fast to what is good. Meaning, cling to what is good. This is the same word Paul uses for marriage. Like a husband holds on to his wife, that's our love holding on to the truth. Holding on to what is good. Love is not genuine if we knowingly let someone walk down a path of evil. Or if we avoid addressing hard things. And this is challenging in our world because culture today says, if you just disagree with someone's lifestyle, you must hate them. We live in a culture today that says loving someone means you agree with everything they believe or they do. And that's just nonsense. That makes no sense at all. How do you parent a child with that version of love? Hey, Tommy, I know you just hate your little sister, but because I love you and I don't want to try and change who you are, that's okay. No! A Christian hates what is harmful because they actually love that person. And now they're humble about it. They're not a jerk about it. They're certainly gentle about it. If you keep hammering people with the truth, you're probably not going to have many friends. But a true friend gently presents the truth. At least ask questions. True love does not avoid the truth. It cares enough about someone to confront them with it. Isaiah 520 says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. There are a lot of people in church calling good things evil. That's not loving. Church should be a place where you know you're fully loved and loved so much that the people around you care enough to warn you when they see concerning patterns in your life. And are they right all the time? Probably not, but they care enough to say something. And for this kind of love to exist in your life, you've got to commit somewhere. You're not going to get that kind of love sitting in a service once a week. You've got to let people actually get to know you, and you have to open up. The sins most damaging in your life right now are probably the things you are not aware of right now. And a church family is a community that comes alongside you, gets to know you deeply, and loves you enough to tell you. Uh, We host a, a gospel community group in our house on Wednesday nights at 6.30. It is the best group. But I'll leave that judgment up to you when you go downstairs after the service. Uh, and towards the end, end of January, we were having a group, and before we do the Bible study, we usually spend some time just hanging out, enjoying one another. And uh, oh, this was like January 26th or something like that. I still had my Christmas tree up, because I love Christmas. No, I'm, I'm just, I'm busy, that's <laughs> uh, And it was really dry, I hadn't watered it in like a month. And we're hanging out before a group, and a couple people in my group pull me aside and they tell me, Adam, you know that's dangerous, right, to have your tree still out. And I was like, okay, sure, it's dangerous. I'm a regular evil Knievel. (laughs) I I left my Christmas tree up for a couple weeks. And then uh, Noah, a guy in our group, he shows me this video of a Christmas tree that's dry and that just gets like the tiniest spark on it. And within 30 seconds, the entire living room is on fire. I I know it's kind of hard to explain You You gotta see, just Google Christmas tree 30 seconds. It's crazy. Like, I saw this video. The entire house was on fire in 30 seconds after a spark on a Christmas tree. Like, who thought this was a good idea to put, like, kindling in the, our living rooms? <laughs> anyway, I saw, I saw that video, and I realized, oh, dang. That is a hazard to my family. And you know what my gospel community did? They, all of them, s- took their time to take off the decorations off the tree for me. And then a person in my group took the tree themselves and put it in the dumpster for me. I had no clue how damaging this tree was, potentially. Friends, we all have dead Christmas trees in our lives. And we need friends who love us enough to point them out and help us get rid of them. And you need a gospel community. You need friends that love you enough to help you do that. And this isn't just for you, this is for leadership, this is for the pastor. I need people in my life to say, Adam, you're being arrogant. Adam, you're being prideful. We all need it. I got it, you need it. So let's be a family who hates what's evil and clings to what's good. Thirdly, we need affection. Paul adds in verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection. Paul uses two Greek words here. When he says love one another, that's the Greek word philostorgai, which means affectionate love. Devotion. This is the kind of love you have for uh, a sweater that has holes in it. This is the kind of love that I have for my dog. Not the love that you have for my dog, because I know he barks at you all the time. (laughs) But the love I have for my dog. A warmness in my heart. A a feeling of of, uh, affection. And then he says, love one another with brotherly affection. This is another Greek word, Philadelphia. Shout out to Philly. Now, don't be fooled by Philadelphia Eagles fans, because they are not nice people. <laughs> They're the only stadium in the NFL that has a jail in the stadium. They, like, who has a jail in the stadium? Well, Philly is supposed to be known for brotherly affection. This is a family love. It's not tied together by social interactions. It's tied together by blood. Jesus blood. This brings to mind what Paul says in Philippians 1, 1, 1.8. He says, "For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus." You ever yearn for somebody with the affection of Jesus? That's what the church supposed to look like. Paul really feels something for these people. He genuinely cares about them. In Romans twelve, we're not just told to do stuff, but to feel something, to have affection, to see the person next to you as your sibling person next to you and say, you're my sibling. (laughs) We're family. We're family. So, in other words, and this is important, in other words, we shouldn't just treat people based on what they produce for us. Let me say that again. You need to hear this. The church does not Treat people based on what they just produced for us. We love people here because they're our eternal family. We're with them until the end, and there is no end. We're called to have a real emotional care for each other. That's why Paul, and, and later on in Romans 16, he'll say, greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, please don't do that to me today. <laughs> but there is this affection I know that may sound weird in our culture today, but there is a warmth we have with each other. And it should be clear, I'm happy to see you. And now this is a calling to be somewhat vulnerable. This is a calling to actually try and care for each other. And the only way you can do this, especially if you have tension with somebody here, because if you're a member here, you probably have a little bit of tension with somebody. You probably, someone probably rubs you the wrong way. How do you have affection for that person? Well, you have to see it from a heavenly perspective. If you're only looking from an earthly perspective, you'll be closed off. You will not show affection. But when you can say, this brother or sister has God as their father. My father is their father. My savior is their savior. I know they're flawed, but they're family. If you're waiting for perfect people to show affection to, you're going to be waiting a long time. You love people in spite of their faults. Why? Because we got the same dad. And soon the church will have no more sin. He will wash us clean, and it'll be a lot easier to get along. (laughs) So we need to have a heavenly perspective. We're We're a family, so let's show that. Number four, we need to have honor for one another. End of verse 10, outdo one another in showing honor. I love that Paul here, he uses competitive language. Fight to honor each other more. This could be translated as recognize the value or the preciousness of others. The church is at its best when no one is seeking the spotlight. When everyone is giving the other person credit. When it's all about we and not about me. And just think about how revolutionary this command would have been in the first century. In such a hierarchical culture. A commentator, Oakes, he says, if at church I hold a door open for somebody, it is not revolutionary, whoever it may be. In the first century house church, if a slave held open a door for their master, no one would notice. But if a master held a door open for a slave, this would be very radical. Giving each person honor individually in first century terms is outrageous. Imagine a CEO serving a cleaning lady. That's the culture of a local church. Let me encourage you to find ways this week to honor someone. Surprise them with an act of honor. Tell Pastor Adam Wilson, I love being pastored by you. Tell your gospel community leader, thanks for hosting us every week. I got you flowers or chocolates or something. If you're a leader... Honor the people that you serve. Thank you for showing up every week. Thank you for contributing to the group in this way. We are a people that deflect credit, give honor, and point to Jesus. So let's be a family who fights to out-honor each other. Number five, enthusiasm. We need some enthusiasm. (laughs) Verse 11, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Notice the intensity here. Christian love, is not cold or indifferent, it's passionate. True love works really hard. Just look at husbands on Valentine's Day. True love works hard. (laughs) Paul adds here, he says, be fervent in spirit, which literally means boil in the Holy Spirit. Are you marinating in the Holy Spirit today? Just in relationship with him, letting him lead, following him. He adds here, serve the Lord, Paul says. The church has always been blessed by hard-working servants. It's said of Martin Luther that he worked so hard that when he went to bed, he literally fell into bed. In fact, one account says that he did not change his sheets for an entire year. That's tired. And really Gross. Don't be that tired, but like, let's find a healthy medium of tired. <laughs> Dwight Moody's bedtime prayer was, Lord, I'm tired. Amen. John Wesley, he rode 60 to 70 miles a day on horseback and on average preached three sermons a day. I can't imagine writing and preparing three sermons a day, let alone preaching three a day. I read a lot of biographies, especially Christian biographies. I find them really motivating. And one thing that characterizes every saint I've read about is that none are lazy. They don't write biographies about lazy people. <laughs> of Colossians one twenty nine, Paul writes, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. Jesus is powerfully working with us within us as we toil. One of the hardest working Christians I know uh, and read about is a man named Charles Spurgeon. Here's an excerpt from one of his writings. He says this, No one living knows the toil and care I have to bear. I ask for no sympathy but ask indulgence if I sometimes forget something. I have to look after the orphanage, have charge of a church with 4,000 members. Sometimes there's a marriage and burials to be undertaken. There's the weekly sermon to be revised, the sword and trowel to be edited. And besides all that, a weekly average of 500 letters to be answered. This, however, is only half my duty for there are innumerable churches established by friends with the affairs of which I am closely connected to say nothing of those cases of difficulty which are constantly being referred to me. A friend of Spurgeon, a man named David Livingstone, who was a missionary to Africa, once asked Charles Spurgeon, how can you accomplish so much in just one day? You know what Spurgeon said? You forget, Mr. Livingstone, there are two of us working. The church is called to be full of people who are resting in the finished work of Jesus, but working really hard as he works powerfully within us. And I think within our church of people like Jess, the the woman who shared earlier this morning, she works full time as a Baltimore City public school teacher. Baltimore City public schools chew up and spit out teachers every year, she's been there for a while you know what she does with her free time? She leads a ministry to underprivileged kids. She has kids in her home, like, almost every day. She probably goes to bed really tired. I think of David, who works full-time at a shipping company. In his free time, he leads a gospel community. And he's starting another Bible study for skeptics, for people who don't know Jesus. And he's done RCC Institute, and now he's being trained to be a pastor. I think of Carla, who is a full-time nurse practitioner and she's in grad school and in her free time, she leads our RC Kids ministry and doesn't get paid. And she leads a stoop group and she's constantly making meals, serving people in the church. These people all go to bed tired. Why? Because Christ is powerfully working within them. His love compels them to serve others. All of us should strive to be fervent in spirit as we serve the Lord. Let's be an enthusiastic, hardworking church. Six, Paul says, you need a little dash of endurance. A little dash of endurance. Verse 12, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. It's a great verse. It's actually, if you come to my house, this verse is on my wall. It's one Sherry and I go back to. It's a good life verse. Whenever I leave the house, I recite this verse. Paul says first, rejoice in hope. He's saying a healthy church is a happy church. There's a joyful culture. Why? Because of our hope. Hope is not a wish. Hope is a certainty. That one day, all sad things will come untrue, death will die, and heaven will come. Christians are happy people because life's biggest problem has already been taken care of. And we know our hope is certain. We should be happy. And then he says, be patient in tribulation. I know life hits really hard sometimes. Sin hits hard. We saw that last week if you were here. Each day is full of new challenges, isn't it? New tribulations, new attacks. Paul says in Acts 14 that it's through many tribulations that we will enter the kingdom of God. So how do we sustain our spiritual lives? How do we keep going? How do we endure? How do we persevere to the end? We rejoice in hope. We know what's coming on the other side, and it's better. I often wonder uh, about moms who have a second child. Like, why would you do that? (laughs) Did you not experience the pain the first time? I I, I hesitated to have a second kid because I just didn't want to have to go through the first kid what he had to go through. And I felt horrible for my wife, and I often asked her, like, why are we doing this again? But because we know what comes on the other side. We know what the result will be. We rejoice in hope. And how do we get through it? Paul says here, at the last part of the verse, we are constant in prayer. God, through prayer, gives us the power to endure through tribulation, and we rejoice until the hope arrives. And so, friends, let me ask you, are you doing that? Are you constant in prayer? Do you have a constant conversation with God going? If you're not rejoicing and if you're not praying, you're going to be struggling with persevering. And so, as a church, we need to rejoice, endure, pray together. Seven, Paul says, have some generosity. Generosity. Verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints. Love gives. God so loved the world that he gave. When you give, you get to reflect the generous nature of God. And remember what Jesus said about giving? He says, giving is tied to our heart. Where our money is, there our heart is also. So we need to be generous. It's for our own good. Augustine An early theologian said that a love of possessions is like a bird trap that entangles the soul and prevents it from flying to God. Greed will limit your capacity to run to God. The local church is meant to be a place where you give generously because this is where your heart is. Not because you have to. You have a deep affection for the people here, so of course you would be generous here. You love the God you worship here, so of course you would be generous here. You're bought into the mission here, so of course you would be generous here. And this is not just to the general budget. This isn't just tithing. We should be generous with our brothers and sisters in need. Help them with the rent if they need it. Buy them lunch if they're not doing great financially. We give generously. And then verse uh, 13, end of verse 13 A healthy church family has hospitality. Paul says, seek to show hospitality. This is pretty foreign in the 21st century church, but this was so essential for 2,000 years of Christianity. Hospitality here means a love for strangers. Now, let me be clear here. Hospitality does not mean entertaining. Entertaining is often about the host. Hospitality is about serving and loving people by having them in your home. You don't need fine china. You can use paper plates. You don't need filet You can make chili. You know you're doing hospitality well when somebody just walks in your house, opens the fridge, and takes whatever they want. Because my house is your house. Some of you are like, Jesus needs to work on me before I do that. Hospitality is using your home as a tool for ministry, not a refuge for yourself. So when you buy a home, and I would encourage you, many of you who are in Baltimore right now, buy a home. It'll get you connected and rooted here, and you actually begin to truly care about the city in a way you didn't before. Buy a home, and when you buy a home, think about how can I use this for hospitality? A quick example of this is it's pretty normal in our church to let uh, people live in our houses for free. There are many people who are members who have been financially in need, and we may not know them very well, but hey, come live with me for six months for free in my basement. That's just normal because our homes are tools for ministry, and we do this because God has graciously invited us into his home. Like the prodigal son, God ran towards us He hugged us, even though we were dirty and full of sin. He gave us his finest clothes, killed the finest calf, hosts a banquet for us, and says, welcome home. So let me encourage you, be hospitable here. And not just at home, while you're in service on Sundays, be hospitable here. Say hi to new people. Go out of your way to make someone feel welcome. After the service, use your home as a place to invite people and to feed them. I would encourage you, too, There are a lot of refugees in our city. There are a lot of international students in our city. Use your home as a tool to serve them. Many of them are lacking community, and you can meet that need. And it's amazing. You would not believe how how impactful hospitality can be. Lives often aren't changed by sermons, but through barbecues, through long chats after game nights, just opening up your life. I to encourage you, let's be a church that's hospitable. Number nine, Paul says, be a church of blessing. Verse 14, and then uh, he also adds to this point in 17 to 21. He says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Verses 17 to 21 reinforce the verse 14. I don't have a lot of time, so I'm going to zoom through this. There are certainly people in the world outside the church who are going to curse you and hurt you, obviously. But the reality is, that this is going to happen in church too. A church is full of broken people. It's a hospital for sinners. So people in church will deeply hurt you at times. And you may have stayed away from church for a while because of how badly a church has hurt you. You know what Paul says? Bless them, even when they curse you. When someone does something evil to you, honor them. Why? Because one day God is going to judge justly. And we bless them because isn't that what Jesus did for us? I was his enemy. I spat in his face. I ran away from him in my sin. And what did he do? He ran after me. He blessed me. He prayed for me. He died for me. He loved me. So the local church family is a family that continually forgives and continually blesses, even when we're currently being cursed out. So let's be a family that blesses. Number 10 of 12, sympathy. Verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. I love this one. A church is a family who feels what others are feeling. When somebody's celebrating, we're celebrating with them. When someone's mourning, we're mourning with them because we're one One body, many members. When my toe feels pain, my whole body feels it. We're not cold. We're not separate from each other. This means we know each other's lives and we feel each other's feelings. Their problem is my problem and my wins are their wins. Now, how do we do this? How do we rejoice when someone is rejoicing? Well, when someone has something good happen, high-five them. Take them out to dinner to celebrate. Uh, One of the ways I love that our church has done this, one of our gospel communities uh, recently had eight different people within the gospel community looking for a place to rent in Baltimore City, a place to live. And so together, this gospel community created a group message, and they sent Zillow links to each other of different houses that were available. And they kept helping each other, trying to find somewhere to live. And when somebody found a home within the group, each person celebrated, even those that hadn't found a home to rent yet. Because their wins are my wins. How do you weep with those who weep? Well, I would encourage you, just show up. Just sympathize with that person who's struggling. Don't preach a sermon. They probably don't need that right now. They just need someone next to them. Uh, one of the most impactful examples of this in our church that I can think of is uh, a couple years ago, Adam and Jen Wilson, uh, Adam is one of our pastors, uh, they had a miscarriage, It's their second? miscarriage. They were devastated. And uh, Tyler, one of our members, was living with them at the time. And uh, a lot of people, we have a young church. A lot of people didn't really know how to grieve with them. What do you do with somebody who's just gone through something like that? You know what Tyler did? He just sat next to them and mourned with them and listened to them and asked questions. Here's the thing. Tyler doesn't have kids, but he still mourned with them. And they still talk about that today. So Paul, again, is painting a picture of a church who actually know each other, who are family. You cannot obey this command if you come and listen to a sermon twice a month, and that's all you do. you got to get connected. Number 11, second to last, harmony. We need to live in harmony with one another. This is an essential ingredient of the recipe of a healthy church. We live in harmony. The local church filled with all different types of people. We, we sing in different languages. We, hopefully we have people that speak different languages from different places, different social classes, different educational backgrounds, but yet unified. The church should reflect the unity of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Those three are pretty unified. You don't see two of them going out to dinner at Applebee's talking about the other one. No, no, they fight for one another. There's no gossip within the Godhead. A healthy church family has no tolerance for gossip or slander. We shut it down. We fight for each other. So when you hear somebody slander or gossip about somebody, or even about the church in general, shut it down right away. We're supposed to be in harmony. Say to that person, thank you for sharing that. Now, you have 48 hours to tell that person, or I'm going to tell them for you because we gotta fight for harmony. You know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, it's better if you're in conflict with somebody not to take communion when you're in conflict. Instead, while communion is happening, go grab that other person and reconcile with them. That's how important harmony is. It's more important than communion. So let's live in harmony. Last one, humility. He says, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. A Christian never says, this task is beneath me, and especially never says, this person is beneath me, because we're one. Again, imagine what this would have meant in the first century. And we do this because Jesus did not consider our sinful condition beneath him, and so no one and nothing is beneath us. So let's associate with the lowly. Let's be humble. Those are the 12 ingredients of a healthy RCC. It's quite a picture, isn't it? This is what it means to have a genuine love for each other. This is what it means to be a church family. Would you join us in making this a reality? And you cannot do this on your own. You need a church family who loves you And you need a church family to love. I know, listen, I I know some of you have a lot of family hurt. You've been burned. Listen, I have family hurt too. And I cannot promise you that if you become a part of our family, that you will never be hurt. But friends, we need a family. Because we can go faster alone, but we go further together. So I want to encourage you to join a family. Here are a couple quick ways you can do that. RCC 101, which is the first step to learn what it means to be a part of a family, is this Saturday. What, how about that? <laughs> this Saturday at 9 o'clock, guess what? There'll be donuts. Guess what? There'll be coffee. Guess what? Pastor Adam Wilson's going to be there. I mean, that's a, a combo you can't miss. <laughs> this Saturday, third floor, there are going to be people outside ready to greet you, at 9 a.m., Sign on your connection card or sign up online. We'd love to have you at least consider what it'd be like to join our family. And then maybe you're not ready for that. Maybe you're still new, trying to feel us out. Is this church the real deal? That's fine. Take your time. Best way to figure out who we are, join a gospel community. You can indicate on your connection card that you want to do that. Or after the service, just come down, grab some free food. And I I, I know it might be awkward for like two minutes. You don't have anyone to talk to, but just hang in there and just be courageous and try and introduce yourself to somebody. And I'm telling you, it'll be worth your time. Okay? Okay? We need each other to make this stuff happen. Here's the thing as we close. Each other isn't enough because we're going to let each other down. What we need really is Jesus. Jesus gives us both the pattern and the power to be this type of church. Though our love is shallow, his love was genuine. Though our love often is not honest, his love had discernment. He spoke the hard truths. He even got kicked out of the temple for speaking the truth. Though our love is cold, he showed affection, even to those who were untouchable in society. Though we don't show honor, he was dishonored so we could be honored. Though our love is often lazy, he was the man of zeal who said, Zeal for my father's house has consumed me. Though our love is fickle, his love endured even to the cross. Though our love is stingy, he was the ultimately generous one who became poor so that you and I could become eternally rich. Though we are standoffish, he was hospitable. He invited us, sinners, the riffraff into his kingdom. He's the one who says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Though we hate our enemies, he blessed his enemies, and he died for them. Though we are indifferent, he is sympathetic. He wept with Lazarus's family, and now he sympathizes with us in our pain, and he rejoices with us and over us. Though our love draws lines, he is the one who brought harmony between all nations, tribes, and tongues. Though our love is arrogant, he was the humble one who associated with the lowly. And as we come to the Lord's table, we are reminded of that. He identified with us even to the point of death. We are his brothers and sisters, and we are so forever. So let's reflect that as we take communion. And God, by his grace, may he make our church one that looks like Romans chapter 12. Let's get cooking.